Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. It is so good to speak with you this week. I wanted to let you know how exciting it is, of course, you've heard me talk about it before, to hear about all the places around the world that we are listened to. For the first time, I saw that we had a lot of listeners recently in the Czech Republic. So, as always, please be in touch at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com and let us know what's cooking over there that is resonating for you and that the show has been able to be helpful and is connected to something happening in your part of the world. And for this week, we have Emily Lynn Paulson. She's the author of Highlight Real, Finding Honesty and Recovery Beyond the Filtered Life and... Hey, Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, Supremacy, and the Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing. She has given two powerful TEDx talks, both challenging the status quo of parenting, alcohol use, and feminism as we know it. Paulson has also been featured in major publications such as The Today Show, New York Times, Washington Post, The Seattle Times, Chicago Tribune, Next Question with Katie Couric, and The Tamron Hall Show. She resides in Central Oregon with her husband and their five children. And it's a pleasure to have you hear her today. Here's Emily now. Today on the show, I am so, so happy to have Emily Lynn Paulson with me. Emily, I know you've been very busy doing a lot of great things, and you're the author of the new book, Hey Hun, and you're here to talk to us about your experiences in the wild and woolly world of MLMs. Emily, love to have you introduce yourself. So I'm Emily Lynn Paulson, and I am a writer, a recovery advocate, wife and mom of five. The reason I'm here is because I wrote a book about leaving an MLM organization and uh, just all about how I got in, uh, what I found out, how I left, and the research I did. My college education is in science. So I was a chemist before kids. I became a chemistry teacher, then had kids, stayed home forever. And I think the, the same things that led me to the MLM led me to personally have a problem with alcohol. You know, I was feeling very alone and I felt like this was a solution. So I was really one of those people who found myself deep in mommy wine culture. And when I eventually did get sober, I did a lot of research and I'm I'm a very, um, you know, I love to go to school. I'm like, a, a, I'm one of those people who constantly is like taking courses and trying to learn more. And I, I found, you know, recovery coaching. I found writing about recovery. I, I just found all of these things that really helped enhance my journey. And so I really wanted to pay that forward. When the pandemic happened, I found that there were a lot of women in that same position, a lot of women, you know, moms who were maybe drinking more than they wanted to, and they didn't really have a place to go. And AA was shuttered. All of these in-person organizations were closed and they weren't necessarily women who considered themselves candidates for for meetings beforehand. 
And so this Sober Mom Squad was this group that really came out of the pandemic. It wasn't anything that was on my five-year plan. Uh, It just started with some free meetings on Zoom and then turned into a community and, you know, courses and coaching and all of these other offerings that we have now. So that really, it was my own recovery that really sent me into that world. That's a tricky thing. Okay. So, you know, having a science background, having an opportunity then, I think, to be appreciated for your mind and your accomplishments and imagining what your accomplishments might be as you use that degree in the world, then it gets waylaid, you put that on hold, then you're raising kids. Suddenly then I think being affirmed for your achievements outside the home probably felt really, really nice. And so they really work on that. I didn't realize that was a really big effort to love bomb through those kinds of compliments, even for small things. Yeah. And and I think that's why, of course, after the fact, as I was looking into different MLM companies, one of the really similar qualities, and it's it's done on purpose, is the first like promotion or advancement rank or title or whatever it's called in any of these companies is very easy to hit in the sense that you could just purchase your own product or maybe get one customer or maybe hit one very, very easy metric that everybody does when they join because say it's required. And because you hit that first promotion, you get these Again, like social media tags, like, wow, congratulations on hitting your promotion. That language is very powerful. Even though maybe you're making no money and you're still actually, you've spent more than you've made, it still feels really good. It's like kind of this mental game that's by design, truly. You know, the language plays such an important role in how we lower our defenses or why we feel excited about something, why we have a false sense of it. I've often thought about if in those moments where you're being told, you know, and complimented on your promotion or your abilities, even though it was a small hurdle to to have to jump over to get there, at least at the beginning, if instead there could have been somebody coming up to you and saying, okay, actually, this is really what's happening right now. And what you've probably done is put in more money than you've made. And you're needing to recruit other people, which serves the company, not you. I mean, if someone had really sort of set it all straight, if you were that person now, how would you describe that scene, forgetting about all of their language, but calling it as it really was? So I think from the beginning, you are automatically, your intuition is squashed. And this is done many ways. And, you know, alcohol, again, that's not an accident that we met over wine and it's not an accident. There's a lot of these uh, retention events that are like cocktails and conversation and sangria and supplements or whatever. There's, there's usually this through line of alcohol, which isn't, you know, any different in, I would say the regular business world anyway, but that seeks to reduce your intuition. What I would say to myself, if I could go back, is those thoughts I had from the beginning, like, ooh, this is a little cringy, even in the back of my mind, was ask myself why. Why did I feel that way? Every little bit of that intuition that came up was immediately squashed or talked around. For example, when I said like, ooh, I don't feel comfortable just sending cold messages on social media, the response was, well, 
I felt that way too, or everyone feels that way, or you will feel that way, but X, Y, and Z, you know, that's the way to step out of your comfort zone. That's the way to get results. Uh, You know, it takes 12 no's to get to a yes, or you'd be given these kind of platitudes along the way consistently. You know, if someone would would say something about the products, you've been given language, you were given all these scripts ahead of time, like to squash intuition that you didn't even know like was going to come up. And so before you even could feel uncomfortable, you would say, oh, right, she told me I was going to feel this way. And so I'm just going to lean into it. I'm going to send the message. So I would say like, don't ignore your intuition. That's probably what I would go back and say to myself. Right. So don't ignore your intuition. And it sounds like they've thought it all through. They have helped you with having ways to respond so that you keep going on this sort of runaway train that suits and serves them. And it's a hard thing, though, to listen to your own voice, especially if your own voice is a doubting voice, because I'm sure there's a whole message about that, that you're not supposed to stand in your own way and have those kinds of doubts. And I mean, that's just something else that they would use, I think, to make you feel like you can't listen to yourself because that's the thing that has stopped you in the past from having success. Or I don't know, how did they say it in the group? Oh yeah. Like don't stand on the sidelines and watch other people succeed or, you know, if someone offers you a seat on a rocket ship, you don't ask why, you just get on. You know, all of those just, it's like these cat poster messages that maybe apply to some things, right? They maybe apply when you're trying to, you know, win a race and you need to practice every day, right? If you have a sustainable like workout program and you've got a metric you've got to hit. But when it's something so vague, like sending messages on social media, like it doesn't apply to something that, you feel wrong about for a reason. The reason it proliferates so much is that, you know, the person who's talking to me, telling me all these things, she's involved in it too. Her upline is telling her those things. She's not making any money either. She's not succeeding either. And she's believing all these platitudes because she has to, because otherwise, why would she stay in? So these things just get shared over and over and over because if you have hope, then you know, logic will lose. If you go to look at the the company um, income disclosure and you see, well, most people don't earn money, most people lose money, you're still going to hold on to that hope because your friend believes in you, your upline believes in you. All those people are on social media are saying, you're a boss, babe, you're doing great. You have that hope you can be like the 0.3%. Uh, okay. Oh, interesting. Also interesting because that message of if someone gives you an opportunity to get on a rocket ship, I would so say no. Um, <laughs> that's just my personality. Like now you guys have have good time. I'll be home. Uh, but I understand the idea. And I'm wondering too, as we're moving forward with your experiences there, I almost want to imagine a split screen here with what was happening at home, what's happening in your relationship, because it sounds like it was a lot of women involved. And I don't know, you know, with women who are with other women or other men, but just the other half, how that fared and how you handled putting more and more money into this or bringing more and more friends into it. So can we actually toggle over to that for a moment and then come back to your experiences? Yeah. So I really believed to be true that what I was doing 
that I was offering a dream to people, right? Because it did work for me. And for really no other reason other than dumb luck and the fact that I kind of got in early and I had money and I had a network of people who had money. Like that set me up for success. But, you know, the reality is it's dumb luck. So I really believe to be true that I could be successful and other people could because I did the things I was told and here I was achieving success. So if other people did those things too, then they could be successful as well. I had no other reason to believe otherwise. And so I think that, you know, which was obviously not true, uh, you know, was something over the years, I realized, hmm, these people are working. They are doing the things that they're told and they are not having the same level of success. Confronting that and realizing that you're, you're selling a dream that doesn't exist for other people. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. And I think that's something that kept me stuck in even at the end, even longer. Because I thought, gosh, I brought these people in and now I realize that they're not succeeding and they probably won't succeed. Like, how can I leave? How can I leave them here? And gosh, I've, you know, been singing the praises of this now for years. And, you know, like I'm an idiot if I now say it doesn't work and I leave. The sunk cost fallacy, not just financially. For most people, it's financial because you just throw money and you never see a profit, but it's that the friendships, the the time you're spending with people, all of that is the cost of, of all of that, that you don't want to say like, gosh, what was that worth? Like, why did I put so much into this when it was a lie? Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people stay because they do feel responsible. They know how it's going to look if they leave and mm, how do they live with themselves you know, leaving people in a situation where they're really not thriving. And you might feel like in part that's your doing, even though it's not because you didn't set up the system. But I, yeah, I wonder about what you were seeing along the way. So it sounds like there wasn't the same strain, thank goodness, uh, in your life, in your home life that I've seen a lot with, you know, people who really get tapped and, you know, and they have nothing left. And that was the money that they were going to use to fix their car or to, to, so that one of them could go to work. I mean, it really was cutting or, or they lost their house, you know, and, and then if a spouse also is not in support of the person continuing, then they're not a supportive spouse. They don't really love you. They don't want you to success. So I'm wondering what information you were given about those kinds of situations, about how people should look at their relationships when their spouse or their partner was no longer being quote unquote supportive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I have to say like, my husband was always supportive in the sense of, yeah, you can do this, but he was always skeptical too. So he's like, you know, you can do this and totally do whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy. And and I think he saw me feeling good about myself for the first time in a really long time. And so he encouraged it to the extent that he knew that he would still have a job. And I always have to say like, I am privileged in the sense that he has a very good stable job. And because I was not the primary source of income, I could join and I could buy things and I could go on the trips. And so this was a second income to our family. This wasn't something we were relying on. And 
that was also what allowed me to leave. And so I recognized the privilege of like, I was able to join, I was able to succeed, and I was able to then later leave because I have a spouse who didn't quit his day job. You know, I didn't retire my spouse. So I, I just always have to say that, that I'm, I'm thankful he's, you know, smart financially in that way. But there was a big drive to, again, retire your spouse. And I was talked to numerous times once I got to a certain level that, you know, it looks weird that your husband's still working. And I think, you know, it was really hard because part of me was like, wow, I'm very proud of myself to have achieved this level of success. And yet also, why would I want to take him away from what he loves doing? And that really is so that he would be more trapped. We would be more trapped and completely devoted because we wouldn't have health insurance. You know, it's a 1099 contract position with an MLM. You're not an employee. So we'd have no health insurance. We wouldn't have his retirement, anything like that. So the draw to retire a spouse isn't to be retired. It's to pull them into the MLM. So that's your your whole world. And he knew that and, and I knew that, but that was a big selling point. And, and you'll see this on social media, like, oh, she retired her husband. It's seen as like a, a level of achievement that you've made enough that now your husband doesn't have to work anymore. It, it always seemed very odd to me. And yet I saw why people wanted to achieve that. Um, but there was definitely the, you know, if people don't support you, they're not on your side. If they don't buy from you, they're not supportive. If they don't join your team, they're not supportive. It, it was very much in line with that us versus them mentality. And I and I saw a lot of people push away friends and family just just from and, and I did too. You know, people who got sick of my social media posts or got sick of me asking and never taking no for an answer. Uh, you push away people who truly do love and support you, but they just don't want to financially support this pyramid scheme. Right. Oh my goodness. The whole idea of retiring your spouse, I mean, there's nothing logical about it. No, nothing. No, it doesn't make the least bit of sense. Even financially for the organization, I mean, it seems like it is reinforcing this message of this sort of magic that, you know, someone leaves their job and they get involved in this, then they'll have so much more success. I can't imagine that happens. I can't think of an example of that. <laughs> no, it's the story. It's the story. And the reason it benefits the corporation is because now they have these people who are selling this dream, who are saying, look, I retired my husband. And people see that as somehow aspirational or they see, they see dollar signs and say, wow, you, you're making enough money that your husband with XYZ employer got to quit his job. Wow, this must be really financially lucrative. And what they also have is someone who is now 100% trapped and cannot leave. Right. Something else that you said too about kind of saying something out loud, you know, and then you have to back it up. I think that's why a lot of people in these groups are made to get up in front of people and give testimonials and, and you know, say things out loud because you do feel like once you've said something is great and successful and wonderful, that then your action steps need to be in line with what you said out loud because you want to have integrity and that your word matters. But I feel like that's just another trap. It is. Well, and not only just, hey, I joined this company, believe me, you know, it's good, believe me, these products are good, believe me. It's always tied to something else, um, like a vulnerable story. Even if it's just, wow, I had horrible acne and now my acne is clear and I'm so confident. You know, for me, my cancer 
diagnosis was roped in. Um, you know, I shared my cancer journey. I shared my sobriety journey. I spoke about these things on stage because it felt like that's what I should do because that's what everybody does. Every MLM success story starts with a sob story. It's just the blueprint. Wow. Okay. So here, you know, you also said that you wouldn't take no for an answer. So just if we can get into that for a moment, because that's a skill that you learn. Some people sort of naturally have it, but most people I think really need to learn those techniques. And I see a lot of people having that, whether it's an MLM or it's a religious movement where they're needing to evangelize or proselytize and they're not going to take no for an answer. You know, it's hard because you realize how much you pushed people, but also sometimes people get really good at sales because of it. Um, and I'm wondering then if you can show us what those techniques are that you learned, just so people can recognize them if it's happening to them and they'll see them as technique. For sure. So I think there's also just this side note of what sales are versus what multi-level marketing is, right? Like if I'm a person who sells something, makes a product and sells it, and I ask you to buy it and you say yes or no, like that's just sales, right? The reason multi-level marketing is so tricky is that people aren't just trying to sell you a product. They're trying to get you in. They're trying to recruit you into the system. So the sale of a product is just the first touch point in getting you to join in the scheme yourself and then recruit your other friends and recruit your other friends. So that's the goal. And so when people say like, no means not right now, or it takes 12 no's to get to a yes, even purchasing a product is seen as a no. Like you want to you know, lead with the business is what you're always taught, even though, again, you don't have your own business, you're a 1099 contractor for a corporation, but you're taught to, you want to sell people on the scheme. You want to sell people on the company. So they join like you as a consultant and then recruit other people to do the same. And so even the purchasing of the product is still not the end where it is in like a regular sales job. So I think that's a big differentiation of like, sales aren't bad. Sales are great. Do your thing, sell your stuff. But that whole like, no means not right now. That's why it's so pervasive because no matter what, there's always more. You bought a product. Oh, next month, I'm going to bug you to buy some more. Now you're locked into this auto ship program. And even then, I'm going to bother you to actually join the business. And when you do join the business, then I'm going to bother you to buy more stuff and recruit more people and attend conventions and spend more money and spend, 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 spend. So it's just, there's never an end. There's never an end. But it is like to hear, you know, it's it's a mindfuck as a woman to hear, no means not right now. <laughs> really is like, and that can only be done in a company that's, you know, upheld by the patriarchy. Like all these companies are run by men. So then it kind of starts to make sense, right? And that there's a whole deeper, you know, context we could go into there but but that's why that no means not you know no means not right now why that messaging is so strong in an MLM because there's always more you could be sold on 
Right. And so, of course, I I think about the Me Too movement in that and that in switching the language, instead of there's always more you can be sold on, there's more you can get away with and there's more you can do to someone without them stopping you or feeling like they can or they should. Yeah, it is a very dangerous message um, about not being able to set a boundary and not having your words matter. That is quite dangerous. And then you see why you alienate people because, and I've heard this time and time again, that, you know, my friend, I tell her no every month. She invites me to something. I tell her no every month. She keeps asking me, you know, why can't they take no for an answer? And it's like to extend that grace that they are taught that is what they're supposed to do. You know, it's 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 really hard to take that step back and be like, you know, they're just doing what they're taught. Right. Yeah. So then I wonder, just in terms of thinking back on the experiences, I'm sure there were some really high highs and there were probably some moments where you were stepping back and wondering about things. So I'm just wondering about those moments that made an impression, good and bad, that you're left with. What memories come to mind all across the board when you think about your time there? Yeah. I mean, I never want to diminish any good things that come out of any toxic situation, right? And I also like to leave space for the fact that it wasn't necessarily because of that toxic situation, you know? So when people say like, oh, it happened for a reason, like that's not, I don't, I'm not that person. So, but did I meet some amazing people? Absolutely. I went on some amazing trips. You know, I got to connect with my spouse on, on trips. You know, there were great things that, that came of this. The low points were, you know, realizing that I was scamming people, you know, the realization when I, when I really had to confront the fact that I was selling something that didn't exist for most people, that wouldn't exist for most people, and that I had brought hundreds of people into this dream that didn't exist. Those were the low points. And those are the things I had to work through and leave. You know, that's why I had to leave. That's why it just it got to be too much for me. Okay. So yeah, let's let's switch into that about those moments of reckoning the the realization, that kind of feeling that can come washing over you where you realize you're participating in something that's going against your conscience probably. And so when you first had that thought and also how you were able to leave and how that was received when you were leaving, especially if they're never done with you, so it's not ever going to be received well. When did you first start having that kind of, hmm, something is wrong here or I'm participating in something wrong here kind of feeling? Yeah. So I got sober halfway through my reign in the MLM. And that was really pivotal for me because one thing I realized almost immediately was I was unable to do a lot of the behaviors that I had done from the beginning because I wasn't intoxicated. I couldn't send the cold messages at 11 p.m. I couldn't bug people over and over and over. I couldn't not take no for an answer, for example. It was like that intuition started to come back online. But the hard part at that point was I had already achieved this rank in the company that it was really everyone else's work that was keeping me afloat. And so I was really in this point where like I was successful. And the other thing that was happening is, you know, you are encouraged to stay in an MLM. People don't want to lose you, right? People want you to stay in this organization because you're making other people money. 
uh, and you're perpetuating the lie for the public, right? So my sobriety was embraced. It was, again, I had this new wave of love bombing that, oh my gosh, you know, you're amazing, blah, blah, blah. We love you. And when you come from a place where, you know, you're doing the 12 steps and you're doing your list of amends and you're confronting like some really, really awful things that you've done. Being in a supportive, a seemingly supportive community at that time means a lot, which is why 12-step programs are there and sobriety support communities are there. But I was encouraged to share my story. And that felt really good for a while. It felt really good until I realized, again, like it was being used to sell the stream to other people. And so it was this really weird place where I couldn't do these things anymore. I couldn't recruit people anymore. I couldn't really even sell products anymore. But I had this huge team of people who was doing the work for me and I was being praised and love bombed more than ever. So I felt I felt stuck for a long time. And again, I felt it like I was in this position where I wanted to make adjustments. I wanted to make other moves. Uh, I started doing a lot of writing around that time. And I started writing what would be my first book, which was the recovery memoir. And with no other, um, I didn't have any other objective other than putting it out there for other people because recovery memoirs had been very helpful for me. And, you know, I started taking coursework and in recovery coaching, facilitating addiction awareness. And I found I really loved working with other women in recovery. So all of this stuff was happening. And then the pandemic happened. So it was like this perfect storm of me wanting to leave the MLM, me writing this book, putting the MLM on the back burner. So I just didn't have to make a decision thinking I can kind of leave it in the back and not think about it. And then again, pandemic happened. I kind of started this group for sober moms. And I really thought I can just leave this to the side and it'll just like slowly go away, (laughs) right? It'll just, I won't have to think about it. It'll just go away. And then when the pandemic happened, there was this new slew of all of this misinformation, people who were really predatorily attacking people like join our you know, join our company because you lost your job, things like that, who were taking out PPP loans, who were fraudulently, you know, fraudulently taking money from people who were trying to pay their employees. And there was so much that I truly could not be involved anymore. And that's when I made the decision to actually, you know, terminate my account and and not be in the company at all anymore. So I wish I could say it was one of those things where I woke up and I was done. But I'm sure as you've talked to many people who've been in high control groups, it's it's just, it took a lot longer than I wish it had. So a lot of people who come to me will say that they left and everyone was surprised because the other people around were not privy to all of the internal conflict that had been growing, festering for such a long time. Um, With such an entrapped environment and with people looking up to you and depending on you and having the upline and downline whole structure, you can't just step away, I think, to a great degree without feeling like you have to be absolutely sure and you have to think about your moves and so I think a lot of people probably in MLMs and other groups like it 
have already started having the doubts that you were talking about just to have and let people know. And do you think just in looking back, would that be safe to say for the for you and for the other people there who may have already been considering leaving and just hadn't told anyone? Yeah. And I would say I was very upfront um, with my upline and with my downline when I started to have those doubts. And by the upline, of course, I was very much encouraged, you know, the only way you fail is if you quit, you know, don't quit as long, you know, we'll support you no matter what, but just stay in. So I was very much encouraged to stay. Um, and like I said, like I felt obligated to stay in because of the downline, the people I brought in, but I was very upfront about, you know, Hey, I'm going to, I'm closing my like Facebook team page, which is like a place where you, you know, love bomb your team basically. Um, you know, I'm not going to be publicly selling anymore. I'm not going to be posting on social media anymore. Like I'm going dark. And so when I did inevitably send in my termination form, it was not a surprise to people. You know, people weren't like, I don't know, that people were pretty quiet about it. Like, oh, you know, we understand. But when I announced my book was coming out. That's when it was, it was a different story. It was, oh my gosh, you're going to talk about this. Like, uh, so, so that was a whole different thing, but, but I would say more people are thinking of this. And and I will say that so many people have reached out to me who are still in these organizations who can't leave for various reasons, or, you know, are just contemplating leaving who, who have these same thoughts. So I definitely think people are are thinking these things, but they're afraid to express these ideas. They're afraid to talk about it. So yeah, I I don't think my story is unique in that way. Mm, Okay. Interesting. Right. So then cut to your book and you're saying you got a very different response. Uh, So tell me about those responses. It was very much like, oh, everyone was so nice to you. Everyone bought your first book. You know, how could you do this? It's such a betrayal. And I have to say that like anybody who is against you sharing your personal story, again, this is my my story and all publicly available information that anyone can find about MLMs. If that makes you feel some sort of way, you're either in denial, ignorance of what's really going on, or you're benefiting from it. And it made me realize how many people were benefiting from me ignorantly or or knowingly spreading the lie that MLMs were a good thing. So I think it just drove home how influenced I was at one time that I would have been that person. I would have absolutely been the person attacking me if it had been 10 years ago, right? Because I was so, you're so programmed to see anyone who will dissent as a hater, as a traitor, as anti-woman. How can you step on the necks of other women? Someone told me. My thought was, I was. I was when I was in it because I was exploiting all of these other people who couldn't turn a profit because, you know, the area was saturated or, or, you know, many, many other reasons. You know, now I'm talking about it, you know, cautionary tale so other people won't get involved in it. But I understand why I'm seen as this hater or why I'm seen as someone who's stepping on the necks of women or or whatever. Like I get it because I've been there. Incredible, right? So much of that is a displacement. The victim is seen as the perpetrator, especially if you feel that you participated in the system. But I think at least initially with very good intention and pure intention, it sounds like the organization itself steps on 
the necks of women and whoever else gets involved. Um, but it becomes very convenient, I guess, to blame you for being that person or anyone else who wants to come forward. Did you need to sign any forms where you weren't supposed to share information? Because some some groups, some businesses are getting really savvy about that uh, so they can be legally protected from people coming forward and sharing the truth. So had I shared this while I was still in the company, yes, I could have been terminated. I didn't sign anything saying that I couldn't you know, share my own personal experience after the fact. One of the reasons I don't name the company in my book is so that I can be more honest, but it's also because all of these companies are the same. You know, as I researched, as I talked to people across the scope of, I think I talked to women from 168 or 169 companies. I'll have to look exactly at the number. It was miraculously the same. Like I couldn't believe how similar the, the stories were. And so that was the biggest reason is I didn't want people to read this and say, oh, well, it's just that company. I'm involved in this one because it's so it's okay. And I think, you know, talking about like the victim versus the perpetrator, that's something actually Roberta Blevins said at one point was, you know, you're a victim and a perpetrator. You become both. And so all these people who are, you know, spreading this lie that MLM, you can be successful in MLMs. They're, they were all victims themselves and they're perpetrating this lie. And so again, like, yeah, was my intention good? Was everyone who joins an MLM intention good? Absolutely. I wanted to better my life. I wanted to better my family's life. And I did. But once I realized that wasn't available for other people, like it was important for me to, to leave. It, again, it's easy to look back and say like, oh, how didn't I know? How was I so stupid? How, whatever. Belief, you know, hope and belief are really strong. Right. And so when you were starting to talk about if if you had been there responding to the person who was you leaving, you would have said all these things. Um, again, for people listening to understand some of these terms and some of these phrases as manipulative tactics to get you to stay and to get you to feel bad about your decision and wrong about your decision. What else would you have said to people in your situation there to get them to stay? I mean, I would continue to promote the good things. I would continue to love bomb, you know, because again, if even if you're not making money, but if your upline is spoiling you with gifts or whatever, like that's enough reason to stay. I think one thing that kept me sucked in was like the girls' trips, because when it's an excuse for work to trip for work, <laughs> quotes air quotes, you'll make the time. But it wasn't as easy to just get some friends together and take the trip. And so I think this this shared desire for escape, again, was something that kept me in long and longer than I'd like to, because you know, like the convention was coming up, and then there was this promotional trip coming up, and this promotional trip, and it was like you always had that next thing to look forward to. And I think the fear is, what am I going to look forward to? And so that's something like, oh, you know, if you're feeling down the dumps, like just think about how fun convention will be or think how fun the Mexico trip will be or whatever the next thing is. That's built in again, because I want those things. (laughs) I want to stay in for those things. I want that, those accolades. I want the trips. I want the escape too. So 
I I would have been promoting those things. And again, those those thought stopping cliches like that, you know, you only fail if you quit. And who knows what will happen, you know, next year if you quit today. And it's always that hope that things will be different that that just keeps a lot of people not making decisions. You're kind of like paralyzed in a way. Right. And and I guess also seeing it with this myopic view of just the next step and the next thing and the next thing. It can keep you from zooming out and saying, okay, look at, let me look at my life here. And is this getting me where I want? Or am I feeling good about myself? Or am I having to say and do things that are kind of eating away at my conscience? And, you know, can I reconcile that? And asking the big questions, it's easier. And I think it's more palatable to just be excited about going to Mexico. Um, I'm wondering about the conventions and what they were like. Oh man. Yeah. The conventions um, were a nightmare. Like they, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you are, they're like these annual spectacles and the planning for them is months before the qualifications for parties and all that stuff is months before. And so really the entire year is focused on different milestones to achieve these conventions. They're very expensive. So that's one thing I think people don't realize is that consultants pay their own way. This isn't something that is just provided to you as a benefit for being an employee or whatever. I mean, again, you're a 1099 contractor, so you pay to go to these things. They are expensive. You know, you got to pay for airfare, you got to pay for the tickets, all the things. You probably have to get childcare. They're generally, at least in the company I was in, they were around like the first day of school. And so I typically missed like kids' first days of school, which again, like I was doing this to benefit my family and spend more time. You know, there's that whole that whole thing. Um, they're like these electrifying, there's these speakers, there's music, there's lights. It's like a concert when you walk into these like convention halls. And it really keeps you sucked in. Like it's it's very intoxicating. So you'll hear from these speakers, you know, they had like Mel Robbins and Rachel Hollis and this whole hit list of like the, um, you know, whatever, um, speaker, speaker circuit of these MLMs. And it was all this empowerment speak, but really it didn't necessarily have anything to do with the MLMs or the specific product. It was just like electrifying and, um, you know, it would come, make you come away feeling like you had bettered yourself somehow, even though you'd sunk like a thousand dollars into this. And then there's always some sort of product that's unveiled. So you're there and you feel like, oh, I've got exclusive rights to buy this and nobody else does. And so you pay the money and you feel like you have a leg up on all the people who didn't come. There's people walking the stage. And so you have aspirational titles to go for. People are getting awards. It's like a beauty pageant in a way, but they're exhausting. And again, I think this is done on purpose because you are loaded up from morning to night. There's parties, there's sessions, there's very little to eat. There's lots of alcohol. And so you come away just exhausted and beat down with less money, but you feel like you have to make it worth it. You know, I I, I paid for this convention. I came here. I've got all these great tools and wisdom and knowledge now. You know, this year is going to be the one. This is going to be the year that I reach out to these people. And I, you know, so it's it's necessary. It's like these big retention events are a necessary part of the system because it keeps people motivated and it keeps money just churning all the time. 
Incredible. I, I'm just thinking of the intensity of it all, even as you're talking about it. It's making my heart race. Like, oh no, it's just continuous and everyone getting pumped up um, and feeling special. Yeah, you know, in a lot of different kind of cultic groups, there's a hierarchy and people are getting their sashes or they're getting their awards or they're getting their commendations or something. And you want to be that and you want to achieve that. And you just see all the applause and how nice that feels. I mean, you know, I've talked to a number of people who said that they were given lots of awards and, and commendations and plaques and whatever, uh, sashes. And then they felt once they left that they were just sort of wearing an invisible crown, that they had felt so special, but it didn't translate into the world outside because it doesn't matter in your life if you achieved that in the MLM. And so it doesn't, you can't take it with you in that way, unfortunately. Well, and I think as in many MLMs, the people who you typically recruit are friends, right? So the people who I brought to me, brought with me to these events were all people who are my friends in real life. And they would get such a kick out of the fact that I was like this celebrity that people would be lining up to like take pictures with me and all of this weird stuff. And meanwhile, like I was just Emily, like I was just the mom who picked up her kids like everybody else. I was a normal person, but it it is really that MLM celebrity. It's, it's, yeah, it's a very, very odd. But again, it, it doesn't translate. It's this weird dopamine hit that then you're in real life and you're like, okay, now what? Like, I need to keep this going. Right. Oh, the dopamine hit. Yes. And then going back to what you're saying about a lot of these were planned at the beginning of the school year. And so you were really faced with needing to make a decision. And if it could be couched as this is to benefit your family, then you can feel okay uh, or more okay about missing those days because right at the end, in the end, you're going to be helping your family more than being there for the first day of school. But to to make you feel torn at all and to plan things that are going to be mostly for women also. And I know I'm being stereotypic. I know there are men who run households and who are the ones who are there the first day of school, but typically by and large, it's going to be the women. And so they're just not able. And what other things... What other things were planned purposely to kind of pull you away during what would have been family times? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a loyalty test. That's what it felt like. And and to be honest, there really was no choice because I never felt like I had a choice. I had to be there. Like a leader show up. That was drilled into my head from the beginning. And the only excuse anyone had for actually missing a convention was like if they were like in labor. You know, they, they were like having a baby that week. Otherwise, you were you were there. You had no excuses because if you weren't there, your team wasn't going to come and then you wouldn't be successful. That was just drilled in. But I mean, month end madness. I'm sure you've heard of, you know, every MLM company, the month starts over. So numbers come in at the end of the month, titles start over every month. So you start from zero at the beginning of every month. So you'll always see at the end of the month, like, all these deals happening and bulk orders and whatever, you know, buy one, get one free and people are spending all kinds of money to get you to sign up for stuff. Well, think of month end, Halloween, Thanksgiving is at the end of the month, Christmas is at the end of the month. I felt like I missed out on a lot of things because I was trapped like in my office on the phone till midnight trying to 
piece together orders or titles or structures or whatever to make sure my numbers were good for that next following month. Incredible. Okay. And what about birthdays and other times like that? Oh yeah. I mean, I miss birthdays if there was something. And again, it's like, it wasn't a choice. It was like, oh, that's when the incentive trip is. It's over my daughter's birthday. Well, okay. Like it, it wasn't even like, it was an honor to be asked to go. So of course you'd miss the birthday and just have a different day. You know, and then of course you'd have all of these other people. Oh yeah, I had to miss the first day. Oh yeah, I missed my daughter's birthday last year. Oh yeah, I met. So you felt like it was just what you should do. All these stories of other people who are doing the same thing out of the the idea that it's how you become successful. From the intensity that you're talking about, there's probably a letdown after because you're spinning and you're on this high. And I'm just wondering about physiologically transitioning away from that and what that was like for you. So I think the pandemic facilitated that better than better than I could have because automatically people were all separated from themselves. And I think being separated, not being able to go to those retention events, only being bound by Zoom, not being in physical proximity with all these women, not being at the big conventions, I think that helped me realize, oh, like, okay, I don't need this. It gave my nervous system time to slow down, really focus on like, what do I want? And what is this taking away from me versus what is it giving back to me? And I think because I had slowly backed away, I had slowly changed the way I spent money. Because one thing that happens in these, no matter how much you earn, you spend a lot. Like you spend... So a lot of the money I was earning was going right back into the system. Whether it was planning retreats, buying gifts for my downline, having to buy like expensive dresses and shoes to do the presentations. So slowly backing off my spending while I was making less money because I was selling less, I was recruiting fewer people, helped me realize that this was something that I could leave. So I think... Again, I had the benefit. And I do think the pandemic helped people in MLMs. It either helped them or hurt them because people were preyed on a lot more because of the pandemic because they were in dire straits financially. They were preyed upon by companies saying their products would cure COVID and all this other you know, false information. But people were more separated. And so they realized they didn't necessarily need those relationships or maybe those relationships weren't really friendships. So I, I, I did see this a lot. Um, people became way less engaged than, than they were before. So for me, that was really helpful <laughs> to get me away. Yeah. Oh, no, it sounds, it sounds good. And yes, it, it was unconscionable to see how many groups would say that they had a cure, how irresponsible, tremendously irresponsible that is to give people that kind of sense of false hope or to dissuade them from getting help or preventing it in actual ways, you know? Okay, so then what happened next that brings us to the present time? So I decided when I left that I wanted to share it in some way. I want to share what I'd gone through. You know, I don't think had I had I not seen what happened during COVID, I don't know. I mean, you never know what you don't know, but I don't know that I would have been, I would have felt so pressed to share what I saw because I just saw so much gross predatory behavior, but also forced me to confront my own predatory behavior. And I think as someone who has been in recovery and who has 
um, done amends. And I really believe in that living amends. And someone who had written a book and realized the power in sharing stories and, you know, not keeping your secret secret and putting things out there. I just realized it was something that I, I wanted to do. And so that's when I um, moved forward into, into writing a book about it. For as loud as I had been recruiting people into this organization, I wanted to be just as loud on the other side. Right. Oh, I like it. That's really good. It's a nice way to use your energy and your voice. And then with the other advocacy work that you do, if you can let people know what you're doing and how you've been able to move forward with that. And I think also knowing too that you're going to be running things in a very careful way because of your experiences, really needing to make sure that it's a departure, that people feel invited, not pushed, you know, all of it. I'm sure there are conscious decisions that you, that you're making um, to stay kind of in line with your conscience. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say the criticism, you know, I'm very smart about not reading reviews. I don't go on good, good reads. Like I know better as an author. Um, but the criticism that I have heard is like, well, you recruited people in an MLM and now you're selling a sobriety group or whatever. And I think it's a, just kind of a lack of, and I welcome the question, you know, I welcome direct questions if people want to ask me direct questions, but I think it's a lack of understanding of that organizations need money flowing through them to work. Even the, you know, the free ones like AA have thousands of dollars flipping through them. You know, Sober Mom Squad was not something I had a five-year plan for. It was something that happened because of the pandemic, something that I realized needed a private platform for people who wanted a message board that wasn't Facebook, for people who wanted safe meetings that required a pretty big Zoom account, you know, so required money, required education, required an insurance policy and talking to lawyers and all the things that cost money. And that's where the fee structure comes in. You know, that's where the membership structure comes in. And because I am able to ask people who want these services to pay, then I can offer them free to anybody who can't. And so that is something that I was very sure that I wanted to do because as a person who, you know, a former drinker who would have loved a community like this as a mom coming out of this mommy wine culture and wanting a place to talk to other moms who were trapped in it at the same time, I would have loved this and I would have been happy to put my money towards it. You know, I... And it was less than I was spending on wine every week, you know? So I, I made sure to structure something that I would have felt comfortable participating in and that is accessible to anyone, you know, of course, with an internet, with internet access. You know, of course, you're never going to be able to get to everybody. You know, our Sober Mom Squad financially supports She Recovers, which is a nonprofit organization. You know, Sober Mom Squad is not nonprofit, but we financially support She Recovers organization. So. Yeah, I think there's just this lack of understanding of just because a, a organization has revenue, it doesn't mean someone is making a profit off of it. So I'm very much the facilitator and not the collector of funds, uh, which I think is a misunderstanding. And again, I am able to do this because I have a spouse who is gainfully employed. If I did not, I could not do this. I couldn't offer my services. I couldn't facilitate this. I couldn't hire coaches and put together volunteers and have someone run a social media account. I couldn't do all these things. 
And so for me, it was about appropriating funds in the right way. And that no one's ever required to pay for anything. We have a free meeting every week. We have free services too. But if people want more and want to pay for them, awesome. If they don't, totally fine. They can't afford them. They can ask. So that's something I felt comfortable with. Do I still get criticism for it? Absolutely. It doesn't seem like this criticism ever follows men. Yes. I was just going to say that, actually. It also doesn't seem to follow people who make money off something that's not... I don't know how to say this, doing good. Like the fact that I'm working with a vulnerable population, I should not be allowed to financially be compensated in any way for that. But if I was giving fashion tips, that would be fine. You know, so I I just think people need to sit with their own understanding of what revenue means and what making a profit means and what a job means and, and all of these things and what people's time is worth. So I'm very careful about not being exploitative with money. And yet I also know what my time is worth. So all of those things, it's very complicated and there's a lot of nuance. Okay. So uh, let's we're having a little group therapy here because here I go. <laughs> um, yes, it does happen to some men, not nearly as often though. And uh, I think women typically are seen as these caregivers and they then should be willing to do this for free as though they don't have bills to pay and children to feed or whatever other, you know, or the furry children they have or just that they need to be able to pay their rent. It's really hard. And I think it's that the fact that women's unpaid labor holds up the entire economy, like that's why MLMs can thrive too. Like that to bring it full circle, it's it's really difficult. And I mean, I, I also have to tell myself too, like because I'm a woman and because I've been involved in this MLM industry, I will get criticism for anything. I've gotten criticism that I'm writing a book that I'm getting paid for. And it's like, yeah, people don't write books for free. Like, I don't know what to tell you. You know, so I, I I know that I will get criticism no matter what I do or don't do. And that's part of it. And yet I know that men don't get the same criticism. Yeah. Uh, that happened also thinking about COVID, that there were so many women who were let go of their positions and, but still needed to do all the work at home and somehow make things work. And you know, for the most part, not always is it possible, but for the most part, we find a way, but we suffer through it and it shouldn't have to be that way. And so I see with society as it is, as we're just talking about here, why the promise within an MLM is so compelling. And finally, you get to make what you feel that you're worth and and all your hard work will actually translate to something that is akin to financial comfort and security. It's a very appealing message and necessary in so many people's lives. And it's just a shame that there are very few people in those contexts who actually are able to fulfill that promise. It's really a shame. So it is really good to talk to you and to to hear about your journey and how fascinating it is to to hear about your sobriety and the shift in inhibition and how then you couldn't do the things that 
you were able or willing or open to before when you weren't, I think, as aware of the self and of, you know, your internal conscience. Very interesting. So, of course, I wish you well, and I want people to know where to find you and where to find what you've written and what you're providing. So go for it. Yeah. So you can find me, um, Emily Lynn Paulson, on all platforms. Also website, Emily Lynn Paulson. You can find my books anywhere books are sold. Always buy from your local bookstore if you can. But of course, it's in all the big box places. My most recent book is called Hey Hun. Uh, and then my first book is called Highlight Real, R-E-A-L. And um, also, if you are looking for sobriety support and you are a mom or looking to be a mom someday, um, Sober Mom Squad is the place to go. And of course, you can reach out via email or social media. I love questions. Very nice. It's It was a pleasure to talk to you and I wish you well. Thanks so much, Rachel. One more thing before you go. It is so interesting to get Emily's perspective on MLMs, etc. It is quite a web that is kind of intricately woven that you just have no idea is going to be so sticky, so entrapping. What I think is so interesting to hear about is when she said that you were pushed to retire your husband or your spouse, that they were supposed to give up their job. And I guess so then they would need to buy into the multi-level marketing system that you were involved in. And that luckily, her spouse did no such thing. And I strongly encourage people out there listening to make sure their spouse does no such thing because it leads you down a path of dependency and financial instability, which is something that's going to get you to buy into this more. It's so selfish. I cannot believe that they want people to forfeit a regular paycheck to have financial insecurity so that they can profit off of it. Unbelievable. Not unlike other groups I deal with every day, but I've never heard it quite like that about being pushed to retire your spouse. Unbelievable. Anyway, there's something that I wanted to expand on that she talked about, where she said that halfway through her being involved, she stopped drinking. And then she found that she had too many inhibitions to manipulate people. That was very interesting. What does this say about what a lot of cultic groups will do to you? They want to keep you in this state of disinhibition. They want you to not be too inhibited to do anything, to say anything. They want you to not be setting those boundaries. They want you actually not to be worried, I think, about your health and your safety. I think they want to just keep you in this state, almost like a hypnotic trance, 
not dissimilar from being on something where you're going to say and do a lot of things you wouldn't otherwise, where you're going to tolerate not having slept, not having eaten, just so you can keep going with your day and throw yourself into it 150%. But as soon as you start taking care of yourself and as soon as you also stopped, as soon as you stop doing the thing that puts you in that more trance-like state or that makes you act without thinking before you act, then you're at their mercy. Then you're that person who later on down the line has so many regrets, so many things you realize you said that just weren't true. So many times that you seemed extra exuberant, but maybe you were on something. And the person who you're recruiting or trying to get to buy into something thinks that you're high on this group and that's why you seem so excited and so charged up and you can go for days without sleep. But sometimes it's because you really are on something or because they've wound you up into that frenzy, which doesn't last, which wears you down, which is truly unhealthy, but also leaves you really questioning your sanity and questioning your behavior not feeling proud of you. It is so interesting when you look at environments like this to have this frame of reference that you might not be able to do the kind of work they need you to do and be as convincing if you're sober. What does that mean about the organization? It is so true that people have to work so hard to get ahead in life. And also, to be able to get sober while they're trying to get ahead in life. So I can only imagine the uphill battle that she had and the uphill battle that so many other people have. But it is true that if you are in a group or a relationship and you find yourself getting swept up in something, like you're on a drug, sometimes you will be on a drug, but a lot of times you are just very caught up in this kind of limerence state, this state of addictive love, this state where you have made a departure from being grounded, from being able to see the situation as it is. And when you're in that state, you feed the people who put you in that state and you help them in the short term while you can damage yourself in the long term, not only because of your health, but because of shame. It's one of the hardest things, though, when you're getting caught up in something and swept away, when you're releasing these wonderful chemicals or being infused with other chemicals, to take a step back and to look at what you're involved in and to really see it. I know that that's a tall order. I know that's a lot to ask. But see if there's a way that if you know there's something you're doing or Mm, some activity you're doing, like some of these cults that I deal with, they have this frenzied dancing that they do where people get into this state that is otherworldly, that's hypnotic. See if the things that get you so fired up, so not in touch with you for a period of time, if you can limit it, if you can say, "Mm, not tonight or not today, take a brief break from it. And then see how you feel and see how you behave and see 
how you feel about what you're doing. And if you have insight into the fact that maybe you've said things that haven't been completely honest just because you were told to, I want you to be able to walk away from a situation, of course, acknowledging what you were involved in and what you said and what you did, but to cut your losses, to be able to shorten the time that you are feeding someone else where you are lining their wallet at your own expense so that at the end of the day, you can say, that was me then, but this is me now. I'm taking my control back. I'm not going to allow myself to be in a dissociative state so that I'm more malleable, so that they can be more of my puppet master. I'm not going to give that to anyone anymore. And so bravo to Emily. And I'm so happy for her that she's been able to use what she learned to educate others and, of course, to do that wonderful prevention that I care so deeply about. And anyone who is ensnared in an MLM, you'll have her contact information in the show notes, and you're welcome to be in touch. It's good to talk to people who have experienced it, know what it feels like to be in that, to be caught in that web. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.